Good morning. Welcome to New Valley Church. Don't you just love that greeting time? I was so tempted to play, uh, have our, our sound booth play, People Are Strange by the Doors. Because the second Amanda says, okay, get up and greet your neighbor, this just fear and paralyzation. All right, I guess I got to do this then. It's, it's funny, but there is some reality to that, that we have this other stranger uh, thing that's just built into us. Uh, I'm me and you're you, and I'm not sure about you. You're a stranger. All the memories of stranger danger are coming back. And as we've w- went through this last few weeks of talking about controversial issues, we've been talking about our tendency as well to put up the stranger danger alerts. And we tend to see people who differ than us in this light of hostility. The title of our sermon today is From Hostility to Hospitality. So we all have this inner hostility, and we often try to use it to convince people to see things our way, come at them with an attitude of hostility. But let's be honest. How many of you have ever been transformed through a hostile person? A hostile teacher, they teach the best. A hostile parent, love to listen to them. A hostile friend, a hostile spouse. That's when I really start learning is when my spouse gets hostile with me. And that's when my spouse learns is when I get hostile with them. But we laugh, but it's, isn't it true? Don't we often go to this your other and, and hostility is the tool that we use to convert people, to change them, to see transformation happen in their lives. But this is what the scripture says. It's our vocation to convert hostility to hospitality. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, we have been given a ministry. Each one of us, not pastors, not priests. We have been given a ministry, those who know and believe in Christ, a ministry of reconciliation. Hospitality by definition. Um, I'm using a definition from a gentleman, Henry Nowen, a book that's profoundly impacted me over the last year. And uh, I use a lot of his stuff in here. So if you're interested in some of these themes, you can check the book out, Reaching Out, Three Movements of Spiritual Life. But his definition for hostility is this. Expecting an enemy to suddenly appear and intrude and do harm. This can be our disposition. Hospitality, on the other hand, the ministry we've been given is this. Not merely... It's not merely inviting strangers. We often think of hospitality as come to my house and we'll share some toast and tea and whatever. But he, he gives a more robust idea of what hospitality is. He says it's not merely inviting strangers over to our home, though that's important, but a fundamental hospitality is a fundamental attitude toward our fellow human being, which can be expressed in a variety of ways really recognizing that they bear God's image. There's something glorious about you. We may have vastly different views on certain things, but there's something glorious about you, and I can talk to you. We can connect. We can relate on that. So it's easy to polarize, but the gospel calls us to transform hostility into hospitality. 
anyone could be rightly hostile, wouldn't it be God? I mean, imagine a person seeing their own son bludgeon to death, and then his response is, I want to seek and save you out. And not only do I want to save you, I want to make you part of my family. That's going to be your brother. So in this passage we're looking at today, we see Jesus masterfully demonstrate all of this as he confronts cultural hostilities of his time, racial hostilities, gender hostilities, political and religious hostilities, all of this in this passage of the woman at the well. If you'd like to read along, you can just turn your Bible to John chapter 4. We'll be reading the first 15 verses. It'll also be posted up here if you'd like to just look and read according to our screen here. John 4, 1 through 15. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, please speak clearly your word today. Through the preaching of the word, would you allow us to encounter the very presence of Christ? To experience the love and the tenderness and the truth he demonstrated so clearly in this encounter with this woman. Draw us close. Help us to see your eyes. Help us to know your heart. Illuminate your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord. Use me, your servant, to speak clearly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Daryl Davis finished his blues set at the Silver Dollar Lounge and found himself a seat. Not long after, a white gentleman approached him and said, I really enjoy you all's music. So Daryl looks down and 
thinks about what to say next, and he says, nothing for the time. And the white man pipes up again. You know, this is the first time I have ever heard a black man play the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Daryl, you can just imagine, smiles again and looks down again, knowing his music history. He was kind of surprised that this man didn't know the origin of the music of Jerry Lee Lewis. And he asked the man, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned to play that style? And he says, well, I don't know. And Daryl says, the same place I learned it. Black blues, boogie-woogie, piano players. The white gentleman said, oh, no. I'm pretty sure Jerry Lee Lewis invented that music type. I ain't never heard no black man except you play like that. And he said, you know, this is actually the first time I've ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And Daryl once again paused and reflected, and he thought, how is it that this man has never sat down? I've sat down with hundreds of, of white gentlemen over the years, and how is it that this man who's even 15 years older than me has never once done this in his life? And he speaks. Daryl says, how is it? I'm, I'm just curious. How is it that you've never sat down with a black man before? Like, and the, the man becomes a little skittish and gets quiet, and his friend elbows him, and he says, tell him. And the white man opens up his wallet and shows Daryl, I'm a member of the KKK. This set Daryl on an expedition to reach out to the Ku Klux Klan. And over the next 10 or 15 years, he spent time meeting with men from members of the KKK and writing a book. And in his closet today, he has... Over 200 robes, white robes, of KKK converts who have realized the image of God in Daryl. Now, this story really resonates with me because I have a fair deal of ethnic ambiguity. When I go to El Rancho, the grocery store down the street, people speak Spanish to me. I remember as a teacher, a woman came up and said, I am so glad that they have Puerto Rican teachers in this school. <laughs> and I said, me too. I was in Morocco at one point in my life, and a gentleman came up and started speaking Arabic to me. And when I speak English, he's like, oh, you look much Moroccan. What most people don't guess is that I'm biracial. My dad is black. And 78 years ago, he was born on a sharecropper's farm in rural Mississippi. So you can imagine my surprise when good people make racial, racist comments to me. And sometimes even spoken to me in confidence. You know, those kind of people. And I'm like, hmm, okay. So we laugh at these stories, but it really reveals that we have, we tend to have blind sides, don't we? We all do. And it's really impacted the way that I experience people. I realize there's much more to the story that we often, than we often are seeing. We like to polarize, but 
life is a little bit more complex. And at the core of this all is this, we all bear God's image. Mankind are image bearers. God's fingerprint on us. How many of you struggle with this? I mean, we do it with political parties. There's no way I could talk to them. I could, no way I could be friends with them. I've had friends who said, based on the last election, our friendships dissolved. I just can't be friends with someone that has that political view. Different theological bents. We're even tempted as Christians to judge non Christians and treat them like demons, strangers. There's nothing in common between you and me. There's no way there could be. But we all bear God's image. It's written from the very beginning. In the, in the beginning, God created them male and female after his own image. So we can either be flexible to hold no truth or so thoughtful are so truthful that we have forgotten the art of grace. Is our deep-rooted skepticism, will we allow ourselves to see the image of God in our fellow human being? Imagine Jesus, the living word. We're going to see in this passage just how masterfully he does this. Can you imagine if Jesus approached people like this? Oh, he's a zealot. I know his type. No need to engage a conversation. This is how zealots act in this situation. Oh, she's a prostitute. I'm going to deal with someone a little bit cleaner. And when Jesus dignifies people and he sees the people of God, but he also sees individuals. He sees the number of hairs on our head. He sees his glory packed in each one of us. He defies polarization. When being challenged one day to be polarized, someone asked him, whose coin is this, Jesus? Is this Caesar's or is this God's? And he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God. He defies polarization. The story may be more complex than we like to paint it at times. What we see in the gospel was a king who respected individuals who entered into their stories so that they may take place in his. He enters into your story so that you can take place in his. So my proposition today is this, that we can move from an attitude of hostility to hospitality when we cross boundaries, when we allow ourselves to receive from others, strangers even, and when we make space where transformation can happen. We move from an attitude of hostility to hospitality when we cross boundaries, receive from others, and make space for transformation to happen. Crossing boundaries. The main point of this first section is that Jesus chose to cross physical, social, and religious boundaries. In this passage, we see Jesus is traveling. He's trying to get from point A to point B. But the text says something interesting. It says, he had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. But in reality, he did not have to pass through Samaria. It was the shortest route from A to B. 
But the religious elite, the most religious, were known to circumvent and go around. I'm not going to dare go in the unclean territory of the Samaritans. I'm going to avoid that uncleanness. But we see the divine prerogative of God, and it says that he had to know I have to go through. That's the only way for me today. Don't you remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish. I have to go to Samaria. That's where I'm supposed to go. That's where the Father's leading me. After the exile, one, one commentator says, Jews returning to their homeland viewed Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted. So there was a racism in avoiding Samaria that Jesus walked right into loving his neighbor. There's another saying that if one met a Samaritan while walking along the road, you need to move as far along to the other side of the road so that not even your shadows touch. Avoid those Samaritans. There's a Pharisee prayer that shows some of the other boundaries that were in place. And it went like this. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile but a Jew, that I'm not a slave but a free man, and I'm not a woman but a man. How broken is that? So Jesus, let's go back in time, though, to his culture, his time, his tradition. He felt these pressures. Hebrews 4 says he's acquainted with the pressures, with the temptation to call everyone else strangers, with the pressure to be hostile. He felt these pressures as a Jewish religious man. But his choice was, I have to go through Samaria. There's a woman I need to talk to. And the woman he's speaking to is often painted in such a terrible light. We we imagine her maybe as a floozy. She's going out just doing whatever. Although his grace would cover that, we should also look at the cultural context. Whenever I speak to people from the Middle East, they say, actually a woman to have several husbands, that means she was most likely rejected several times. Jesus says, I have to meet her. i got to meet her. So we all understand cultural pressures, right? I mean, when you go in an elevator, imagine just, just stand facing everybody. You feel a little, just a little taste of pressure. Uh, now, let's go a little deeper. Next time you're at work and someone makes a racist joke, pipe up. What if we just pipe them to say, you know what, I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't speak about my friends like that. Step into that boundary. That's what Jesus has demonstrated. So Jesus resists the pressure of his time. He's tempted in every way, but he goes into it. We like to wear our Christianity. I've said this before. I just feel like we have to say it again. We like to wear our Christianity like a new pair of tennis shoes. Get that fresh white tennis shoe, and you open the door, and I know it doesn't rain in Phoenix a lot, especially this summer, but you walk outside, and what are you looking for? Puddles. Keep me away from dirty puddles. So the way we wear our righteousness, like these new shoes, we go out and we dodge, and we move away from, I don't want to be too, oh, that's unclean, that's, that's dirty, definitely not. I better stop messing around before I fall down and knock something over. 
But Jesus wears his white shoes and he goes right into Samaria. No, I'm heading right for that mud puddle, just like our little kids. They go right towards it. But Jesus, differently, when he steps into that puddle, what happens? He sanctifies. His touch sanctifies and it transforms. And we know that, right? Because he stepped into this little mud puddle called Tyson Shea's life. He says, I have to go through. Last year, I was actually noticing my tendency, though, to avoid crossing boundaries in my neighborhood. I was struggling to love my neighbors. You see, there was one house, there just seemed to be a lot of suspicious activity going on. And I know that's hard to imagine in Gilbert. But there's this house in the neighborhood, and there's always people posted up in front of the house. I mean, and that's okay. I, I love people that want to be neighbors. But there, it was always different people. And it was, it was till late in the night. I mean, it'd be 1 a.m. There's still someone posted up there. I'm starting to think, I don't know. I've seen things like this before. So my wife and I begin to get suspicious. And I think our attitudes are starting to go towards, man, this is frustrating. Why, why are these guys doing this in our neighborhood? We're all... We're assuming all the time, so who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. But as the story goes on, I see the Mormons come in. And guess what? Those guys are good at crossing boundaries. They're there. They're talking. I'm listening in at the park one day, and he's like, well, how's things going? I know last week. I'm like, man, these guys know my neighbors better than I do. This is my neighborhood. So I start to get a little jealous and frustrated. And I think, no, you're not going to out-neighbor me moving here from a different state and out neighboring me in my own neighborhood. So I drive home one day, park the car, and I said, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this. So I go, I go to this house, and there's about five, six gentlemen there that day, and there's a woman in the back. She kind of has her arms crossed and seems to be watching over the activities. And I'm just doing Pastor Tyson. I'm like, you know, I'm asking names. Hey, how you doing? Where are you from? I'm going through all these. And I realized looking back, I was asking a lot of interrogative questions. <laughs> How you doing? Where are you from? I go, oh, that's all. And one guy's just kind of telling me everything. And the woman back there is just like, she has this look like, what are, you, what are you doing? Are you telling him all this information? So I'm just like happy. Hey, I live right down the street. I walked home. I come out the next day, and the house is like ghost. I have not seen anyone in that front yard for months after that until someone moved in. And to be honest, I think it might have been a drug operation and so what I'm telling you is, you know, break up drug operations in your neighborhood. <laughs> no, we don't always know how God will redemptively use our acts of love or hospitality. He redeemed a corner of my neighborhood. I didn't yell. I didn't threaten. I didn't do anything like that. I just went out and said, hey, my name is Tyson. Great to meet you. Where are you from? So that wasn't my hope and my expectation. I thought maybe we'd start an ongoing relationship but it became a, a, a vacant house after that day. God's called us to go cross boundaries. He's going to use us redemptively. Hopefully next time we have some friendship and not just uh, a vacant house. Otherwise my neighbor will be empty. Maybe it's me. <laughs> but the Lord has called us to cross boundaries revolutionize the way I think about my neighbors. I have so much to grow here still. Have you ever noticed, though, how easy it is to oppose someone on the opposite side of a boundary line? We can have so many thoughts. I could have kept judging them. We could have so many thoughts, 
But when you cross that boundary, your heart tends to soften. and You begin to see, if you'll let it happen, the image of God in those souls. And what happened? What would happen if Christ never crossed that boundary? So where is the Samaritan border for you currently? Where are the places that I won't go? Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's political parties. Think about it. We all have them. Is it a neighborhood? Do all your friends look the same? Why is that? What do the people who eat at your dinner table usually look like? Why is that? Has not God not called us to be a light to the nations? May the Lord grow us. He crossed the boundary for us. There's a beautiful hymn, What Wondrous Love Is This? And the author says, When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. He crossed the boundary. I'll come. I'll come meet you where you're at. You don't have to get cleaned up first. I'll come meet you where you're at. In order to see that transformation happen, we must cross boundaries. Second point, in order to move from hostility to hospitality, we must receive from others. Now, this is a little counterintuitive because we often think to cross boundaries, we need to give to others, and we've learned that well. I think a lot of us are just uh, tremendous givers here. The main point of this exposition, though, is that Jesus was open to receiving from strangers and outsiders. He had this habit of receiving from people. And they weren't the people you think he would receive from. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, notorious person in his community, Jesus said, hey, we're going to your house today. You have some food you want to cook me. Let's go eat. I'll receive from you. Jesus was happy to receive from Zacchaeus. The sinful woman, she had nothing to give but her tears, and she wept on Jesus' feet. And he said, I'm happy. I'd be glad to receive from you this offering you're giving. We destroy those boundaries of hostility when we learn to receive from others. We're actually dignifying people when we receive from them. We're not just taking from them. We're dignifying them. And this woman, in this act of receiving from her, she's like, who, why is it that you, a Jew, is receiving from me, a woman? Like, you're, you're from a different religious tradition, and you're a man, and, you're, and, and I'm here in the middle of the day because, because I don't want to be seen by anyone else in the heat of the day. But Jesus dignified her. And I had some friends speak to me and say, hey, I, I lived in the Middle East, and, and with tears in their eyes, they said, this was such a dignifying act. And, and this woman most likely wasn't a woman of the night. She was a woman who'd probably been abandoned and rejected, used and rejected, used and passed on. Women weren't looking to get out of marriages at that time. That was a great source of security. So let's be careful the cultural filter we even put on this woman. But Jesus dignified her and he said, you have something to give me. 
Another point we, we must consider is this. The text says it was at the sixth hour that Jesus met this woman. There's three things we should, we should gather from this, that it was hot. Nobody goes hiking in Phoenix in the sixth hour. That means noon. No one goes hiking. It was hot. She was hiding. Why wasn't she coming in the cool time of the day with other women? She came alone during the hot time of the day. And he was thirsty. Jesus wasn't pretending to have a need. His humanity enabled him to have a real vulnerability, and that's called thirst in the desert. And he brought his vulnerability to her and said, give me a drink of water. You have something to give me that I could really benefit from. So this imperative may sound a bit rude that he's saying, give me a drink of water, but you can tell from her response that she was not offended but surprised. How is it that this man, a Jew, is asking something from me? Nobody else treats me like that. Nobody asks me anything. They dodge me when they see me on the street. But Jesus, God, the creator of heaven and earth, sits down and says, can I have a drink of water? You have something that could greatly benefit me. The woman is perplexed by his willingness to receive. One commentator says this, that the creator of the world who needs nothing from anyone asked her for a drink. and He dignified her by acknowledging his need and what she could do for him. He showed her his vulnerabilities. He saw what no one else in the group was seeing. He saw his own image was being born in this woman. He saw his own thumbprint on her. And this was an authentic interaction, right? He was thirsty. So we don't just go to our neighbor's house and pretend like we need a cup of milk. What's your legitimate need? A Japanese master during the Meiji era, the turn of the 20th century, Nan-in, a Zen master, was entertaining a professor. And as he poured the professor a cup of tea, he allowed the kettle just to keep pouring. And soon the water poured out, the tea poured out over the cup, the saucer, and it's pouring onto the floor. And the professor is saying, stop, don't you see what's happening? Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, it's overflowing. The cup can't hold any more. It's over full. Nan-in spoke to him these sage words. You are full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? And astonishingly, Jesus does the same thing. He approaches this woman with some space in his cup. Some space to hear your story. You're not just a number. You're not just another one of those sinners that needs to be saved. I have some space. Come bring your story to me. He comes with the, to this woman with space in his cup, space to see her, to hear her story, to dignify her, to bring herself to the table. We don't like people to bring themselves to the table. It gets much more complicated to have our ideals played out. But Jesus, he comes to you. That's why the Bible says, I think he knows a number of hairs on your head. That's why he comes to you and listens. He knows you. It's not just a cosmic salvation. It's a personal, intimate, knowing, 
loving, following, and receiving. Not a disinterested professor. I grew up with a dad who never pursued me. He never wanted to hear my story. He didn't know me. I know what that feels like. But Christ is very intimate in wanting to know his children in a godly way. He's looking for authentic friendship. So who are the people that you would never ask a favor from? Maybe it's anybody. Maybe it's just hard to ask anything, to show your vulnerability. Is this Christ in us, or is this self-righteousness? I have nothing to receive. I'm self-sustainable. I'm autonomous. I'm guilty of this. Are there people who might benefit from receiving from you? I wonder how many people around you are just dying to have an opportunity to give to somebody. And maybe you have a legitimate need. If your next door neighbor was an excellent craftsman and you had a craftsman gift, would you receive from them help? What if she was a woman? with four children and you're a single young man. Would you receive? Would you dignify her gift? Maybe she's a widow. She's an excellent craftsman. Would you receive from her? Dignify her image bearing? So Jesus had a legitimate longing and he shows us his vulnerability. And we destroy hostilities when we allow others to give to us. The gospel shows us the Christ that comes in humility. The Old Testament prophets spoke of old. They said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a suffering servant. You may not recognize him when you first see him because he's going to come in humility. He's going to come open to you. And he's going to come bringing the truth to you well. That gets us to our next point. In order to move from hostility to hospitality, we need to create a space for transformation to happen. In this point, this section of the text, we see that Jesus doesn't force truth, but rather creates a space in which transformation can take place. You don't see him coming in with an iron fist and dominating the Roman citizens, the Roman Empire. You don't see him dominating the religious elites. You see him in humility and brokenness, hanging on a cross, a pitiful sight, bloodied and battered, naked, Changing the world. So what, it, what really is our ultimate hope when we have these hostilities rise up? We want to see transformation happen. We want to see things get better. We want to see change. But we often pick up the tools of hostility, and we expect people to change. I often try to get my children to change through hostilities and confessing. So we want transformation. Jesus masterfully demonstrates how this transformation can come about with this interaction with this Samaritan woman because he sets a table of grace and love, openness, vulnerability. He's vulnerable with this woman who would be considered an enemy, an unclean enemy. He sets a table for her. And you see what happens is 
she begins to transform because as the text goes on, as the narrative goes on, we see that she begins asking him questions. But it's not until after he has come in into her space, received from her. She says, give me this water. Where is this water at? It's not Bible beating. One writer says, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman with gentleness and grace, reveals sin without rejection and condemnation. There's a conversation about water, very ordinary things we can all relate to, not high-headed theology. You have water. Can I have some? I have some water too. You like some? So in the gospel, we see Christ not bending to the will of others nor bending the will of others. He's strong. He's solid. We get our orthodoxy from him. Rather, he's creating space. My um, friend Henry Nouwen has, a, has something to speak into this. And here's a quote from him. Hospitality, therefore, means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them a space where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom, not disturbed by dividing lines. It's not to lead our neighbor into a corner where there are no alternatives left, but to open up a wide spectrum of options for choice and commitment. It's not an educated intimidation with good books, good stories, and good works, but the liberation of fearful hearts so that words can root and bear ample fruit. We're talking about Jesus Christ. This is orthodox theology. He didn't bend. He didn't give any of the truth, but he came in gentleness and he created this atmosphere of grace. It's by grace we're saved, not by works so that anybody can boast. It's always been that way. When did God save the Israel, when they're in slavery, he saved them. He parts the Red Sea, and then he gives them the law. It's by grace first, and then he gives them the law and instruction. He saves by grace. He sets a table where you can sit down and say, oh, I, I'm, I'm invited here. I'm, I'm, people are open to me here. God sees me. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water. Where do you get that living water? Sir, give me this water. So he begins asking him questions. When people start asking you questions, that's a time to speak a gentle word of truth and invitation into the richness of this kingdom that we've become aware of. Jeff Greenfield, in a uh, PBS article, talks about the growing tension between political parties, he says, this increasingly dark view of the opposition has now become a dominant feature of the American political landscape. Survey after survey has shown that Republicans and Democrats now view each other not simply as wrong, but as malevolent, literally a danger to the public. This is the political climate that we're in. With these polemics, where is the space? Where's the opportunity for transformation? It's okay to pick a party and have convictions, but are you leaving any space for conversation, for the spirit to work, to see human flourishing happen? I think that's what we're really concerned about. Well, the gospel once again reminds us, has anyone ever showed you space? Has anyone ever invited you into their home and said, 
hey, you can come with all you got, all your, all your good, bad, and ugly. We love you. We're just glad you're here. In the gospel, this is what anyone who says I'm a Christian is saying. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I give him my rags. He gives me his riches. That's a space to transform. How many, how many of us are currently seeing people transformed in our lives, whether it's a tender heart growing in our spouse because she knows I'm not going to come at her with intensity to try to prove my point, or a coworker who sees things so backwards in my mind? How many of us are seeing transformation happen? Follow the, follow the leader, follow the Messiah who came to sinners with grace. He made room. There's an opportunity to engage with a real person here and to be truly transformed. There was a man who crossed boundaries and he saw you, but there was a chasm, a dividing boundary that you could not cross. And there was a man, his name was Jesus, and he came and he crossed and he said, I want you. I don't care what anybody says about me for associating with you. I want you. Come and be with me. Matter of fact, you're in the family now. There's a man who came so graciously and said, I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear your prayers. Journal to me. Pray to me. Talk to me. You have something to give me. I love your whisperings. I love it when you come to me and ask for help. I love it when you tell me what you're scared of. I love it when you tell me what you like about me. I'm open to receiving from you. There's so much glory in your life. Jesus Christ. And there's a man who set a table for us. And when we were hating him, running against him, essentially murdering God's own son, he said, I have a table for you, a table of forgiveness and grace. Come and eat. Be filled and satisfied. Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he forgives us of all of our sins. And not only that, he says, no, now come on in. I accept you as well. Accepts you as righteous in his sight. But don't worry. You're not going to fall out of good terms with him because it's only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, injected in you, laid on you, and received by faith alone. So he does the maintenance. Praise be to God. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love the way you deal with sinners. We love the way you've dealt with us. Teach us your ways, O oh Lord. Fill us more with the sense of your truth and your grace and your mercy. Help us to encounter you more and more, Lord, in daily prayer and hearing of the word. Soften our hearts, O oh Lord. Your word promises in Ezekiel 36, 26 that under the new covenant... Hearts of stone will become hearts of flesh. We want you. We want what you have for us. Please receive from us, Lord, our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.